Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. MICA protesters have taken their plight to the doors of power. Also tonight, a stark warning from hauliers. Ireland's driver shortage is an imminent national emergency and concern from a parents of a group of children with severe disabilities after on-site therapists were removed from their school. We have a special report tonight. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Irish Road Haulage Association is warning of an imminent national emergency due to a shortage of lorry drivers. Joining me to discuss this tonight is Fine Gael TD Neil Richmond, Jennifer Whitmore of the Social Democrats and Paul Jackman, Vice President of the Irish Road Haulage Association. But first, it's been a week of chaos in the UK. The country has seen huge queues as people panic by petrol. Earlier, I spoke to Sky News correspondent Enda Brady and I began by asking him to describe the panic there over fuel shortages. Yeah, I think it has been a real worry. And, you know, there was genuine concern. And then, of course, a lot of people kind of piled in and the queues built. And the more they saw it on the news and heard it on the radio and everyone was tweeting about it and all over social media, it just grew and grew. So what we've seen this week is service station after service station simply run out of fuel. And this is repeated up and down the country. Now, Scotland had a few problems. Wales had a few problems. No problems in the north of Ireland whatsoever. But it's predominantly London and the southeast of England that is seeing all of this. And driving around, I mean, I've seen some terrible driving behaviour in the past few days. Traffic numbers, they reckon, down about 6% on last week, purely because a lot of people just felt that they would work from home. Uh, They couldn't get fuel. They couldn't get to where they wanted to go. And we've now facing the prospect this weekend of army soldiers delivering fuel to service stations. I mean, it would be almost unprecedented. And amid all the panic there, what's the message from government? Don't panic. I mean, we've seen cabinet ministers tweeting in capital letters. If anything is going to not reassure people, uh, it's that. So the message from the government is that there's plenty of fuel There is plenty of fuel. It's in the depots. It's in the refineries. They don't have the lorry drivers to get it to the service stations. I think the big problem here, Claire, is that one major retailer put out a press release last week saying that they had problems at five service stations out of 1,200. And suddenly that developed into a problem. I mean, it's less than 1% of their service stations and now we've got a situation I drive the M40 motorway from Oxfordshire into London every day and service station after service station before you get there it's flashing up on the service station on the lights saying no fuel and then you get onto the M25 and the first thing that hits you there it says Cobham services no fuel so approximately 27% of service stations in the UK right now are completely dry and one thing the government doesn't want to blame Is Brexit? Yeah, very little talk about that. You know, we've had issues, obviously, 
for weeks now. Um, McDonald's ran out of milkshakes. KFC ran out of chicken. Nando's ran out of chicken. Uh, the drinks industry have run out of carbon dioxide and the meat manufacturing industry as well. They don't want to talk about Brexit, but quite obviously it is a, a perfect storm almost, if you like, between the pandemic on one hand and Brexit. The Prime Minister has used an analogy saying that it's the equivalent of everyone coming out of the pandemic and suddenly everyone's turning on uh, the kettle at the same time and using lots of energy. But quite frankly, this country is down 100,000 heavy goods vehicle lorry drivers. And I've heard stories anecdotally this week of people traveling over from Ireland, guys who drive lorries picking off really good good salaries um, because they're, they're just so desperate over here to get produce to market, to get supermarket shelves filled. And the next massive issue really is how we're going to get through October, November, December. Um, this fuel crisis, I don't think it's going to end anytime shortly because people, the, the driver behaviour and buyer behaviour the last week to 10 days has just been extraordinary. And that was Enda Brady, Sky News correspondent, joining us there. Um, Neil Richmond, I want to come to you first. Uh, you say that Boris's Brexit is exactly what caused this problem. Absolutely. There is an HEV driver shortage across Europe, no one's denying that, but it has been grossly accentuated by Brexit. 14,000 HGV drivers left the UK immediately after the referendum. 80,000 workers more generally weren't allowed to give settled status. It's not just the driver shortage, it's also the fact that they are still going off a real-time logistics supply chain method. They don't have the access to cabotage and less and less European companies want to export to the UK because it's no longer, or Great Britain in particular, because it's no longer a desirable destination because of the bureaucracy. But lots of these problems are affecting lots of places, but it's been made so much worse by Brexit. And ignoring it and saying that it's not playing a factor is simply making it worse. I have an eight-year-old uncle in Surrey who hasn't been able to get fuel for five days. He doesn't know when he's going to leave the house. And he is quite clear that the people who worked in his supermarkets, the food that were there, it's not there anymore because too many workers, key workers, have gone home and made this so much more worse. And Paul, you're here and you're representing hauliers, yes. uh, but we're facing a problem here as well. You know that this fuel shortage and crisis is because of a shortage of lorry workers over there, but we have a similar problem with drivers here, don't we? Yeah, we're not at that scale, as Neil referenced, the exodus of drivers from the UK on the back of Brexit. Uh, and, and, and another component to that was that the 85% the of the movement of goods in and out of the UK, which is considerable, on the back of their trade pre-Brexit, was done by European trucks. So while they were in the UK, they were doing an internal movement. And now they're, they're much reduced on the back of Brexit because the trade has reduced. So those, those lorries aren't available to contribute to the movement of goods. Uh, to say it's, it is very much linked to Brexit, I would agree with Neil on that point. Where we are... Uh, uh, UK very much isolated itself on the back of Brexit, but there's a, geo there's a geographical aspect to it as well. They're an island. We are more removed from the EU. So there's a contagion effect potentially going to come on us where Irish drivers are now being approached at truck stops in the UK by agencies offering them work in the UK at, at exorbitant rates. And are they going? Uh, it's, it's, there is a leakage. And, and what you have there is, you know, on uh, Boris, they announced 5,000 visas, you know, but to go from Ireland, you don't need a visa, you know, and if you have an Irish licence, you can go over and drive. So, so we're actually, you know, it's going to impact on us potentially. So, but what you also have is we, on, if you look at Germany, for every four drivers retiring in Germany, there's only one replacing them currently. But that's less of a problem in Germany because when you look at what it's surrounded by, like, you know, the biggest uh, companies, transport companies in the, in the EU are now Eastern European. 
they are now covering. So a lot of the, inter the movement of goods around the EU from country to country is now being done by the big Eastern European countries. So the German manufacturing uh, mm. base has access to that. We don't. So there's no one at our border, no one out at the sea waiting to come in to fill the gap that's going to be created here. We as a country are totally independent on our indigenous transport industry, both for the international and the national movement of goods. So we need help with the government on many layers. Um, you know, but, but the, like what we're What's looking for... What's the priority, for, would you say, Paul, now? Well, we need to ex exacerbate the driving tests. That's one thing. There's a big, there's a, there's a big delay on driving tests up to uh, several months, even though everyone might... People might have their permits done, you know, and they're ready to go. The second one is delays, uh, be they at the retail distribution centres or at the container terminals mm. in the port. The port is just chaos. I spoke to some hauliers coming up the road and the stories are just horrendous. So if you take it, clear, if you had 20% of our trucks are delayed three to four hours a day, if you take that, that's effectively 5% of the national fleet and drivers doing nothing for a day. And that's happening and it's, it's destroying the... The quality of the job has been undone, drivers can't get home, and uh, this, need, this is, has been dealt with in Portugal by they've brought in legislation where a contract for to move goods, uh, there's a guaranteed time limit at each end, after which there's legal support for the haulier okay. to charge for time. Okay, let's and that's, that's a big step to improve the quality for the driver, to entice more people into the industry and to help the haulier get more out of his day, out of his truck and his, and his asset, as in, including his driver. You know, um, so. Hauliers are looking for government help on this one. Um, we may not have voted for Brexit, but we are certainly feeling the impact of it when we talk about the new red tape that's right across Europe and how it's affecting our own transport networks and getting those vital goods into this country. Um, what are we going to do about that? Because we can't wait until we have shortages on the shelves, can we? Of course not, and hopefully we won't ever get to that stage. And that's why the work on this actually began a number of years ago in the Brexit preparation. It's why we've seen so much of our supply chain moving away from the land bridge through Great Britain direct to the EU. So we see the direct um, sailings into Spain, into France, into Portugal, uh, into Germany. We're also seeing a greater recruitment of drivers from outside the EU. So 320 permits have been given to non-EU drivers. A lot of them are from South Africa. They've come over, yeah. they're qualified. And also the group met with uh, Paul organisation and other on the led by Minister Nocton met on the 8th of September so what's the medium term aim the average age of a HGV driver in Ireland is 50 it's attracting more people indigenous drivers as Paul says into the area and that's a big part of the wider drive of apprenticeships that Minister Harris yeah. is leading as well. Apprenticeships and uh, as you say getting younger drivers yeah. and it would help solve um, youth unemployment issues as well wouldn't it Jennifer I mean does, does more need to be done to get drivers, to get people into those jobs that are so important really for our economy? Absolutely, and I think uh, Neil is talking about what's going to happen for the medium term, and a lot of this, you know, these things take time to get into place, but what Paul has spoken about is there is a short term uh, risk here and I think the government needs to implement short term measures yes. and you know one of the things you mentioned was the driving test now to me that seems like a very simple uh, thing that could actually be expedited and resources really pushed heavily into it to ensure that we don't see any impacts in the short term because you can really understand if there is drivers in Ireland you know they might yes. be tempted to go across the UK and I think that should be the absolute first port of call for government is to make sure that those driving tests are expedited and that people have access to them and that in itself might help with, with the short-term risk whilst the medium-term yes. uh, measures are being put in place. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. If I can commit a little bit on that, what, what we'd like to see is, as well as that is the commercial licence that a driver, currently if you're driving a truck and if you went down to the port tonight to pick up a trailer, that's, that's you've never seen in your life, the driver is responsible for the mechanical condition of mm -hmm. that trailer. And he could be stopped on the road and get points on his licence on the back of the condition of that trailer. 
totally innocent of the, the circumstances. So what we're looking for is that the commercial license, that a, a successful applicant for a driving test, when they get their license, it's a commercial license. Okay. It's removed from their personal license, Claire, as opposed to landing points on all their, all their personal stuff. So we also have developed a traineeship, which you'd be interested in, Claire. And if you look at 16 to 25-year-olds, their, their unemployment rate is, across the EU, is twice what it is for any other age bracket. So here we have this cohort of unemployed people falling between the cracks in some instances. We have a demand for uh, truck drivers, like what a fantastic opportunity so to link, marry the two. So you're saying there's an opportunity there, we six have developed month traineeship, Claire, and you'll hear about it. And skill so them up. We'll have it, it's rolled, being rolled out nationally in a few weeks. We have 50% okay. of the education training boards all lined up to launch this uh, And that's something you've organised yourselves? Yes, I believe the IRHA has done that. Okay, yes. so the IRHA has to do traineeships to get no, more truck drivers on the road. I'm just wondering, on those points but No, around... Minister Harris is also doing a lot of work that in terms of the traineeships, and there has been cooperation, okay. um, and it's very clear. And also in the media term, those 320 work permits, they've been issued, those non-EU nationals are here to coming in. It's not just about the medium term, it is about the short term. Well, Expediting will that solve driver the problem, tests. those 320 no, permits? Well, absolutely won't, well, it's in, part in, of in, okay. in, fairness, so, in fairness, Claire, that there's, there are five countries where the Irish authorities will recognise the licence from. Japan, but look at that, Canada, the UK, South Korea and South Africa. So the only country that we can, we can pull drivers in from that have the licence, and I've again talked to some hauliers coming up the road, it can take up to 10 months to process one, one of these drivers. And I, and I spoke to one haulier who was a driver, two months before his visa was up, he applied, he went, two months before it was up, he applied, look. and Claire, he, it's two months gone now, it's four months later, and he's unemployed for two months. He can't work because of layers and layers of agencies you're dealing with and due process. So we can see all these problems, all yes. these hold-ups, and the fact that there aren't enough lorry drivers on our roads. Are you worried, therefore, about shortages in the run-up to Christmas? Scenes like we're seeing in the UK that possibly could be replicated here. Do you think it could come to that? Um, I, I, when you look at the industry and how it has dealt with COVID and Brexit, and, and I'm applauding not only the industry, but the drivers. And if you remember for Brexit and, and uh, the Department of Transport were involved in this, we got the derogation on the tachograph laws, which we had to get to deal with Brexit. That's, that's possibly a default position that we might need to get up to. But I know the public that are watching this might be concerned for Christmas. I think with a few adjustments on the driving test, um, on, on the, um, like a law to, to, to make it less likely that okay. trucks will be delayed. These delays are costing the industry. But otherwise, you money. say, because your, your, your um, industry has, has said that it's an imminent national emergency. Yes. Otherwise, yes. the threat is that we could there see is, there problems is a by Christmas. There is a threat there. Like, we're not as hit. If you look at it across Europe, there's a 20% vacancy rate that's not being filled. We're at about 10 to 15%, we're looking at Ireland. But that contagion to the UK is a risk. Are you worried about uh, seeing scenes replicated here that we're seeing in the UK at the moment, Jennifer? I mean, look, I think what needs to happen is the government needs to listen to, to the hauliers. Um, there's solutions there, and I yes. think they need to implement them quickly. I think it would be really negligent if we did get to the point where we have uh, cases like we have in the UK, because I think that would in, you know, sort of demonstrate a failure on the part of government to actually implement these relatively simple measures okay. to ensure that it's, it's prevented. And Neil, those measures that Paul has been talking about, those short-term measures uh, to get you know, trucks to ensure they're up and running and that there's enough drivers, 
can they happen soon? So Minister Nocton, Minister of Transport, will be pre presenting a suite of measures in the coming weeks. They met with Paul's group and other groups on the 8th of September. The report has been compiled. This is being consistently monitored long before Brexit. I was on, in the stakeholder meetings with Paul's predecessor throughout that period over the last few years. There's always a concern, but I've no doubt we will manage it and we don't need to be looking at the UK. When we look at the UK, we have to remember it is a very different situation and there are the tools, as Paul has mentioned, as others have mentioned, that can and will be put in place to ensure that we don't come anywhere near that. Yeah. So and, and Claire, sorry, we were invited by Minister Nocton's department to make a submission on this issue, which we did and we're meeting the Minister next week. So hopefully these um, suggestions will be taken on board. Right, so you're confident of a move on that? Uh, there needs to be, there has to be. Okay, has you'd, to be. you'd agree with that, Neil Richmond, that there has to be a move soon, um, because those images that we are seeing do worry people here. But there's moves constantly, Claire. This hasn't simply come out of nowhere. We've been working, many of us, on this for the last five years. There's been constant moves. We've brought in, as Paul said, 320 drivers from South Africa, recognised driver's licence. We changed the supply chain network three years ago under Minister Humphreys. All these things are happening. More has to happen. More will happen. And I've no doubt Minister Nocton will ensure on, that. On that. On that number, Neil, uh, we need two and a half, three thousand drivers tomorrow. And that's likely to be a requirement for every year because of the average age of drivers. We're looking at drivers that are heading for retirement there. So that's going okay. to be a requirement, Jennifer, from that youth unemployment. Which, and hopefully the traineeship will draw in that youth and will just give them a means to a career. OK, yeah. my thanks to Paul Thank Jackman. Neil and Jennifer will be staying on. Uh, and now just to go to another story tonight. And for years, MICA protesters have been calling for action and a 100% redress for their crumbling homes. Well, as the government gets close to making a final decision on what they'll get, they took their protest to the gates of Leinster House. That's a double one. Well, we can speak now to Michael Doherty, the public relations officer of the MICA Action Group, who joins me via Skype tonight. Uh, Michael, thank you for joining us. 100% redress, that's been your demand all the way along. What about this rumoured compensation cap of €350,000 per householder? Yeah, we've got a real problem with that. Um, Claire, we're very disappointed by it. It's not in the spirit of what we talked about throughout the summer with the, in, within the working group. Um, we knew that the housing department position was certainly to not give us uh, 100%, although we felt or we were told we were getting in there to try and facilitate something closer to 100%. But it was obvious that they wanted to hold on to their existing scheme and uh, throw a few crumbs along with it and hope that that would be palatable. We have done due diligence on this. We've used the SESI calculator, which is the recognized industry standard for the true costs of uh, replacement, replacement of a home. We have uh, worked with the housing agency who were a great help in putting it together. We've agreed our numbers on that. We bring it back to the housing department. It doesn't seem to be palatable there. And the results of that calculator are what they are. And when we measure that up, a read across against the number of homeowners affected by that cap of 350,000, 40% of our homeowners will be left behind. And that's not something mm. we can accept. And Michael, um, the government seemed to be struggling with the way of doing this, or at least from the, all the flag flying, we're getting a number of different messages. What has Minister Darrow O'Brien been saying to you? There was a meeting there last night. What update has he given you? And where have you left it now? We were disappointed last night, Claire. That was meant to be, and the agenda very clearly stated that uh, yes, we would be in attendance, and it was for an hour and a half. At the very start of the meeting, we were let, we were then told it would be for an hour maximum. We had a, a block vote to attend, um, so we were to uh, present our position. 
paper, which we already presented to the entire working group back on the 17th of September, so two weeks ago. Uh, we were then due to hear from the department officials and their position paper. That never happened. So what we got instead was a repeat listening to ourselves, talking about what our position was. Um, and Darrow Breen then uh, continued on to give us some reassurances about an enhanced scheme. There was no numbers, there were very little detail. It did tell us that by today, close of play, we would have a document which would have the homeowner's position on one side and the um, housing department position on the other. We'd have that by close of play. As of now, we still don't have that. So, okay. you know, it's been ran right to the 11th hour again. Um, so we, we really learned nothing from yesterday's meeting, to be right. honest. So what now? Do you have a date for compensation or at least an announcement around this? Are we are we waiting until budget day to get it? Yeah, no, well, the process is that that position paper, which was due today, um, um, Minister O'Brien then has to look at that. And for every line item that is different, uh, a different position between the homeowner and the housing officials, he needs to decide which side is he going to fall on. So that'll be a checklist as such. Once he has made his determination of what he believes to be the right way forward, is to bring that through the various coalition uh, leaders and obviously ministers O'Donoghue and McGrath. Um, it will then go to cabinet. We're led to believe in probably three weeks time in that memo. And um, it's probably going to be then before we see what the real outcome is. So we were told the end of July, we were then told the end of September, and it looks like it'll be closer to the end of October before we know where we stand, unfortunately. OK, there we leave it. Uh, Michael Doherty of the MICA Campaign Group, thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you. Now, after the break, the loss of on-site therapists at a Dublin school for disabled children is causing concern. A special report next. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, there is concern from parents of a group of children with severe disabilities after on-site therapists were removed from their school. Nicole Gernon has a special report from the Carmona School in South Dublin. Ruan Conlon is one of 36 children who attend Carmona Special School in South Dublin, all of whom have severe disabilities, both intellectual and physical. Ruan can't walk and he can't talk, Nicole. He can't point. He has no means of communicating with us. He can't gesticulate, doesn't understand law of sign language and can't use it either. 
so he can smile and he can cry to communicate his needs to us. Until recently, there were on-site therapists at the school for the whole day, but as part of the HSE's Progressing Disability Services Policy, they're now based centrally and visit the school for allocated hours. Parents are devastated at the change, which they say will be detrimental to their children. School for Wuon has been absolutely amazing. It's a wonderful environment where he has at his disposal all of the tools that he needs to feel as fulfilled as he does and to feel as happy um, as he does in school. And the fear is now that that model is broken and that he won't get the inputs that he needs to thrive. Therapy and learning and their fulfillment, their sense of happiness and fulfillment are intrinsically linked for our children. There's no decoupling therapy from their learning. Therapy needs to be infused right throughout the school day. After a campaign by parents earlier this year, Minister of State for Disabilities Anne Rabbit, supported by the Taoiseach, directed that the services were to remain on site. But this didn't happen. It's hugely upsetting because we can see as parents how our children can thrive in the correct environment where therapists and classroom based teaching st staff work hand in glove to create an environment where the children can maximise their potential. And now to think that that environment is broken and the children won't go and achieve what they can achieve given the correct supports for parents, it's, it's horrendously upsetting. We're distraught as a cohort of parents. We've had a number of emergencies in the school where children have aspirated on liquids or on food, where it's gone down into their lungs and that is a medical emergency and an ambulance has had to be called. And fortunately, we've had a physiotherapist on site to perform emergency chest compressions on the child to sustain that child's life until the paramedics arrived with the ambulance. So for our children, it's not a nice to have. It's an absolute need to have the services on site in school on a permanent basis. In a statement, the HSE has said that staff were reconfigured under the Progressing Disability model to form seven children's disability network teams, adding that no therapists have been removed from the school and there's been no contravention of the minister's direction and that members provide therapeutic services to Carmona consistent with what was allocated before the pandemic. But parents have criticised the HSE's position. It's only a minority of special schools we're talking about. The amount of clinicians that are, that are required to stay on site to help these schools doesn't adversely affect the PDS national policy as a whole. And I think we have to remember that Minister Rabbit has already secured additional funding in order to have the extra clinicians employed to provide the services that have been here since 2002. We'd like whoever is actually running the country to, the country to intervene and compel the HSE to allow these clinicians to remain on site. Parents say this will give their children the best chance at leading a happy life. Life has not been kind to our children. The odds are overwhelmingly stacked against them in every area of their daily function and they need all the help that they can get. Their needs are exceptional, therefore exceptions must be made. That was Trina Niagarty ending that report by Nicole Gurnham. Well, let's get more on this. I'm joined once again by Neil Richmond and Jennifer Whitmore and also by Andrew Murnahan, who's a parent spokesperson for the Carmona School. And Andrew, we saw you in that report um, speaking out so strongly on this matter because parents are so worried about it. Um, and we've heard what the HSE have had to say, that in fact they haven't removed services, that the therapists are still available to the school. But you are saying... It's not the case. They're not there as they were on site. 
No, it certainly isn't the case. They're removed at the end of June. We received a letter um, around the 23rd of June saying they're removing services. We were shocked because we had assurances from Minister Rabbit in April and May and June. Um, that they would not be removed and the Taoiseach confirmed that in a letter as well um, to myself as the spokesman for the parents. This is such a serious situation. Every day that goes by that we don't have permanent um, conditions based on site, a child's life could be in danger and there are very foreseeable risks. So we really don't understand why the HSE have taken this stance. Yeah, it's, it is confusing to people watching that, trying to understand. When the government have said, and Minister of State Anne Rabbit has said, and received assurances from the HSE on this, in April, May and June, that on-site services would remain, that it's, it's not the case and it's not happening. Why isn't it happening, Neil Richmond? It's not happening and it's simply unacceptable and that's why I raised it in the Dáil last week alongside my colleague uh, Jennifer Carroll McNeil because there's 13 children in my own constituency who attend the school every day and this situation, it's not as it should be, it's not the assurance the Taoiseach gave and was given in return by the HSE and it's why I've written to Paul Reid, it's why I've written uh, to Minister Rabbit again this week to say we need that direct intervention. There are other schools in a similar situation uh, in Rohini and Sandymount who haven't uh, lost their services and this is unfortunately where government needs to intervene with a, a government department and say going by spreadsheets simply isn't good enough and everything that Andrew and the parents group have had to do they shouldn't have had to do that and it's now that government representatives like myself and ministers need to step up to the plate and force this through. Um, why are the HSE do you think digging in on this one? I, it baffles me. Um, as Andrew rightly said, children's lives are at risk. Um, it's, there's harrowing situations every day. It shouldn't be like that. Unfortunately, this is the tried old situation where something looks right on a spreadsheet but isn't happening in real life. And that's why the Taoiseach and the Minister have intervened. But I think, and I say this as a government TD, they need to intervene far more strongly. And I'll be raising this in the Dáil again next week mm. and every week until it's resolved. Um, Jennifer, watching that report, um, you really see the distress and the worry of parents of children attending that school. Uh, what is the, the, the right approach now and, and, and the immediate task at hand? Because this has been going on for months now with assurances given by the HSE and yet no change. Yeah, it seems that the HSC are playing with figures and with numbers and words in relation to this and saying one thing whilst the reality for parents and children on the ground is very different. Um, and I think it's welcome that, that there are government uh, uh, representatives who are saying that, it, that it's wrong. But there is questions as to, you know, who is in charge here because if the HSC are refusing to take direct, uh, you know, directions from the, from the Taoiseach uh, and, and the Minister for Disabilities, I mean, that's not acceptable. Yeah. And I think when it comes to parents, what I've, what I've seen, because I've worked at many parents of children who have additional and special needs and very serious disabilities as well and life-limiting conditions and the most frustrating thing is that those families have enough on their plates they should not have to fight for these for these causes and um, they need to spend time with their children with their families and that's where their energy needs to be and they shouldn't have to be you know mounting campaigns getting TDs on their side getting it raised in the doll the HSC should be working with these parents to make sure that their children's needs are being met and be met in a way that's suitable for the children. I mean that is a question who is in charge, Neil? Well, this is unfortunately the great caveat in our health system that you have the government direction, but you have the HSE operating and there is a breakdown So here. what's happening? Is it a breakdown in communications? No, it's not a breakdown in communications. Politics it's, at play? 
I definitely don't think it's politics at play. I think it's a gross inefficiency that the HSC have a plan and they're being far too rigid. They need to be flexible, particularly in acute situations like this, where they need to respect that what worked previously shouldn't be changed for the sake of an overall national strategy. It hasn't changed for other schools and it's putting parents through the absolute ringer. It's forcing pe um, people to give up their time that they should be spending with their children. Andrew, you're listening to what Neil has to say there. Do you think there's going to be change? Do you think that therapists are going to return to your school to be on site for those children who really need them? Well, only if the Taoiseach intervenes directly. I think the HSE have to be compelled to reinstate these therapists because we're having meeting after meeting going nowhere and all we get is impenetrable English. You know, there are thousands of women watching in tonight who have given up careers to stay at home and look after their kids and the only respite they get in a day is a child going to school and they have a right to be supported to stay in school and get an education. And the HSE need to own that and the Taoiseach needs to make them do it. Will the Taoiseach intervene on this one? I certainly hope so. In the letter of assurance that he gave, he needs to I stand I mean, it was brought that. up in the doll on Tuesday by Mary Lou Macdonald, who again mm -hmm. um, just talked about that decision and the, the, how the HSE were informed um, to restore the services. Mm -hmm. And yet you know, we're not really hearing that it's going to happen. And it was brought up in the door the previous week by myself and Minister Rabbit did give an undertaking to push this through again. She did agree to go out to the school. I know she hasn't yet, but she will again, like she did in July to meet the parents. And as I said, um, this is going to be something that I'll be continuously pushing, as will my colleagues, until it's can resolved. Can you give a guarantee on it? As a backbench TD, no, of course I can't give a guarantee, but I can give my guarantee that I'll continue to drive this through until it's resolved. Do you not think that at this point, with the assurances that were given at the highest level from ministers and the Taoiseach saying in the Dáil on Tuesday that it was a priority, that you can't give a guarantee that those therapists should be back on site in Carmona School as soon as possible. But it's not my guarantee to give as an individual TD. I think it's grossly irresponsible of the HSE if it isn't resolved uh, and the time is of the essence and it needs to be first thing. And as I said, my continual efforts will be to get that resolution mm -hmm. and to hold the Taoiseach's feet to the fire on this. Well, I think it's actually grossly negligent of the HSE. There's no risk assessment carried out in this policy. The model that's there in the school works and has obviously saved lives since 2002. So the HSE should not be allowed to impose this. It's a risk. It shouldn't be allowed. And, and, and I do think as well that if, if the HSE does not follow the direction of the, the, the Taoiseach, like serious questions have to be asked. They really do. And there has to be accountability with that. I mean, the, the HSE is there to undertake the policies of the state and, and, uh, and of the government. And if they're refusing to do that, which it would appear in this case that they are, I do think okay. that, that that really does, uh, you know, raise very serious questions for us. OK, well, just to leave it on, um, a statement from the HSE says... Uh, the HSE Chief Officer in the area, the Head of Disability Services, uh, the Network Manager and CEO of Enable Ireland will be scheduling a meeting with families to ensure that they're fully and accurately informed of this plan. And that, that meeting that they've actually scheduled, they gave us absolutely no notice of. It's for next Monday. It doesn't suit families, the mums and dads trying to hold down jobs here. It's unacceptable. There's no meaningful engagement. All right, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to Andrew, Neil and Jennifer. And up next, our review of the week and tonight's nightclub test event. Welcome back. Let, let's take a look now at the week that was with John Lee, executive editor of the Daily Mail Group, Aoife Moore, political correspondent with the Irish Examiner, and Larry Donnelly, lecturer of law at NUI Galway. 
Well, first of all, we are seeing a big step forward for the nightclub industry as a test pilot event uh, takes place at the Button Factory tonight. Let's take a, a look uh, to some of those who are there. I am, um, I've never been so excited for something in my entire life. Like it's the first thing back in like two years. I mean, like I'm 22 and like I love going to these things and I love going dancing and I'm just so buzzing. So I think everyone just thinks it's like a surreal to be back out. I think that's just the feeling. See, I feel like music, especially nights out, is such a shared experience. So yeah, like exactly. the fact that everyone's going to share that again is really special and it's going to be unreal. Like I'm yeah, buzzing. I'm so excited. It's about time. Like, oh, I can't um, wait. I'm excited, but I'm a bit nervous. I haven't been around this many people and I've only like, recently got vaccinated so this is my first time properly somewhere without a mask like indoors as well so yeah. yeah i'm excited though finally like we're on track oh, they're all really excited yeah Isn't that well, great we... would you like to be there tonight now well no offense claire i might maybe prefer <laughs> to be at a nightclub than here but no no this is far more um my cup of tea yeah, big looks fantastic. Though. It's great to see kids enjoying yeah. themselves. It's like it all never happened, isn't it? Almost at this stage, it's yeah. like a bad dream. It was a long time coming. Uh, opening. I mean, it's not even fully opening the nightclubs. It's one event yeah. um, at the Button Factory, Aoife, and a pilot event at that. Uh, now they're using a number of things. We saw people wearing masks there. You mm. have to mask up on the way in when you're queuing, yeah. and then when you're inside, there are antigen tests that are taking place yeah. as well, which must be seen as a positive. I don't know. I think even today when Catherine Martin, the minister, was talking and she said there may be a rule. I cannot believe that we're 18 months in and we haven't decided whether there's a rule or not. I would also say nightclub and, and that industry isn't really conducive to going during the day and getting an antigen test. That's not really how going to a nightclub works for a lot of people. You know, you've been out for a few drinks and then you might end up going to a nightclub. I think the nightclub sector kind of would take whatever they can get at this stage. I feel like they've really been left behind as like a lot of the art sector has. I think it's a good thing, but I think this all could have been done months ago. Yeah. Do you agree with that, Larry, that, you know, these events and because the arts was something that really came, and entertainment, they really took such a pummeling with this pandemic. Um, they're late getting back on track, aren't they? Uh, that's certainly true. I mean, look, I don't want to be a killjoy. I mean, for me, walking down Shop Street this week and seeing literally hundreds of young people uh, out enjoying themselves, I suppose one side of me was saying, oh, I don't know if this is right or not. But the other side of me was saying, uh, it's great to see young people out having a good time again. And isn't it great that we're mm -hmm. finally starting to see uh, some signs of life as we emerge from the other side? OK, we'll have to, of course, see more events and see how all those antigen tests went, because, you know, arguably, and people have been saying it, there is a place for them as we're coming out of the pandemic. Um, well, they've said they're not, they're not sure if they're going to play a role, which make, makes you think they're not. I mean, everyone's vaccinated. The government seems to have had a, a sea change on everything. Suddenly, overnight, even though the figures are well up over a thousand, we're going to progress to the 22nd of October and the country opens up. So I can't yeah. see how the, the arts industry won't be going along with all of that. Yeah, no. Movies and religious events and everything else. Okay, well, uh, in line with that, or before that, of course, we have the budget and a lot of talk in the run-up to that around the pandemic bonus and who's going to get it and how we are going to recognise the frontline workers who held everything together during the past 18 months. But it's proving to be a really divisive political issue, isn't it, John? Well, they can't decide, A, what it's going to be and... B, who's going to get it? And I spoke to a minister this evening and he said the most likely um, outcome will be 
that the public sector gets something and then I think uh, your colleague Gavin Riley wrote this a year ago that that bank holiday, that extra bank holiday will be... A d it's one of those things that's not going to please everyone or anyone. Mm. Uh, the government doesn't believe it has any role in um, providing a bonus for the private sector. Uh, for instance, there's been talk of supermarket workers who are essentially frontline workers um, getting a bonus. That's not one for them. The supermarkets companies did very well out of the out of the pandemic, one of the few sectors, but they haven't come up with a, with a viable solution. It will be extremely um, divisive and extremely expensive. There have been predictions between 377 billion for every healthcare worker and a billion of every public sector worker got, uh, mm. was to get some form, of some form of bonus scheme, which is based upon 10, 10 days of paid leave. And that with everything else that's been going on this week, with electricity and a national development yeah. plan and everything else been funded, that looks like it's supposed to be next a to good, impossible. And it is supposed to be a good news story, isn't it, Aoife? I mean, I'm, I'm sure they wanted whatever, uh, you know, whether it was Michael McGrath or Pascal Dunhu gets to say it on budget day, that was supposed to be the piece of good news, but it could well backfire. Yeah, I think it's so typical of this government, though. This, this thing that should have been a nice thing that we were all happy about is now a dogfight and we're arguing with unions and the government's arguing with itself over who should get it. You know, we heard at the Fine Gael Parliamentary Party the other night that one TD said that we shouldn't be doing it at all. What should have happened is that they should have made the decision earlier on of who was going to get it before leaks started coming out and they should have decided who was going to get it. Also, ministers should have held their powder at the time. We were talking about it very early on when the Tanis himself said, well, what about people in Department of Social Protection? They're saying, what about people in Revenue? It should never have got to this stage. When you talk to people who work on the front line of healthcare, 500 euro isn't really what they're after. I think a lot of them would be after better paying conditions and better working hours, but that's not a conversation the government's willing to have. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had Phil Hay on the programme from the INMO and she was saying, we actually broached this last November. Um, it's being talked about now. There was that opportunity, as Eva said, to talk to the frontline workers, make a plan and have it all decided instead of all this talk um, ahead of the budget. I might be the fly in the ointment here and say that I have some sympathy for the government. I think, after all, uh, politics has, could be crudely reduced down to a game of who gets what. Uh, and when and how they get it. Uh, and I think in this instance, I think the government is almost in a no-win position because you can point to the case uh, of a number of different groups, both in the public and private sector, who went above and beyond during the pandemic and who deserve, uh, we would all think on the merits, have a very strong case in terms of some sort of benefit for what they did. How to make those decisions when you're doing it against the bottom line uh, is not an easy business. The one thing that I think is important and I think was a big mistake was to put the idea of an additional public holiday, to throw that into the mix. <clears throat> to me, an extra bank holiday is something different, something separate and apart from the, this discussion. But the determination as to who gets what, that's a very, very hard business to be involved and in. On the subject of that extra bank holiday, what do you think about that Fine Gael promo that they put out saying Thanksgiving holiday here? Well, look, I, I mean, I think some, some of the opposition, I think that, to be frank, I think was colored by, you know, what, what might be some uh, sense of we don't want to be the 51st state. And I do understand that. Uh, I also understand the motivation behind, I think it was Kieran Cannon who proposed it. I understand the motivation that was behind that. I don't think it was a malevolent intention whatsoever. Uh, and I think the idea of giving thanks for what happened, I think, is a good idea. The timing, on the other hand, uh, we can debate one way or the other. And the sentiment, the dominant sentiment seems to be that February would be a more apt time for 
for it, so I respect that. But some of the criticism, I thought, uh, of, uh, of Cannon's idea, I thought was over the top. A bit harsh, but you are coming from that U.S. position on that one, so... Uh, no, of, 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 <laughs> of, of course I am, but I've, but I've long articulated the point that I think giving thanks is a good idea. Whatever the roots uh, of American Thanksgiving and the genocide and all the things that have been said in social media, mm. the idea of giving thanks, I think, is one, the, the, one of the things the United States should export around the world. Lots of other stuff we should keep to ourselves, okay. but I think that's one we should export. Okay. Um, John, the issue around the Metrolink North, we heard this week, it was 2027, wasn't it? That was the date that was being penciled in. Now we're hearing 2034. 2034 was... Can we forget about it? Leaked. I, 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 I personally think you can. You know, even you talk around government and there's a lot of cold water being thrown on a few of these major projects. I, I think what happens with these national development plans, they come up every three or four years, they're reviewed. They give us everything, in the, uh, something for everyone in the audience, a, a great plan, a metro plan, and then they extend it by three or four more years. The metro, I could be imagining this, I, I think I heard about it prior to 2001. I must confess that I'm a, I'm a Northsider, so we've been reliant on this for an awful long time. Um, but certainly in 2001, it was first floated 20 years ago and has been put off and put off and put off um, as, as recently as 2018. We had a whole discussion uh, about planning issues and, and certain areas that it was going to go under yeah, in Drumcondra. Yeah, about the, the, the Greens agenda and all of this and transport, public transport being key. The fact that about a couple of hundred million has already been spent around this plan. 200 million uh, on the metro. Yeah, and there's also plans around a, a Dart extension and all of this now on hold. It doesn't seem to make much sense, only that obviously there's a huge financial output in order to complete the project. Well, I think one strange aspect was that um, a, Eamon Ryan is a strange person in, in political circles and he's very honest. And he went out and stood up my story unexpectedly uh, in, in advance of the publication of it. You know, the, okay. perhaps there's a better way of playing this politically. But if you look at Metro North, for instance, for a government that needs to deliver and deliver very quickly, all the constituencies that will be affected mm. by that lack of a metro have... have got enormous Sinn Féin votes in the last election. Okay. And I think this is going to be very, very politically damaging for the government. Okay. And you'll see government TDs lose their seats over it. Um, we saw also this week in the Dáil that um, the women who are at the centre of that uh, Women of Honour um, report looking into abuse in the Defence Forces met with Minister Simon Coveney and now this independent external report has been announced. Um, will it go some way towards them getting answers, an apology more information around this. Simon Coveney was up in the doll the day taking uh, uh, questions as the Minister um, for Defence and you know it was a full full frontal apology. Um, he said that he believed the woman absolutely. He spoke quite emotionally about you know their testimony when he met with them and his officials and he said no that this should not have happened and anyone in the Defence Forces who serves in our Defence Forces should not be subject to harassment or, or whatever else. They have announced this review. Um, I think what will be important is, you know, taking the woman's testimony on board and have their say within the review. It was pointed out in the doll today that um, Simon Coveney was actually asked back in May, are the reporting controls there? Is everything above board? And he said, yet there's yet there was no issue. Now we find that there obviously was. He said that in the doll today. He said that the reporting mechanisms. Um, do not stand up. He also said they made people very uncomfortable. Then it turned out that some woman 
had been uh, cross-examined mm. by their so-called or alleged abusers. You know, Simon Coveney said that obviously shouldn't be happening, but there is a command structure. It's different in, yeah. in the defence forces. So it does seem that there is momentum behind this now. There's a lot of public okay. pressure and the government does seem to want to do something about it. But I would also say we knew about this after Do Dr Tom Coleman's report years ago when very little was done. OK, we'll have to leave it there. My thanks to my panel. Our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. From all the late team here, good night and take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.